Dispatch Publishing presents Little Flower, written by Ted Oswald and performed by Zara Jane Naqui. Three. The world is a troubled place, Francis. There is no doubt. I was not always able to write, especially not in English. In fact, my family and village would be shocked to see how easily I can unlock the combinations of these words. I don't count this as a matter of pride. It is only God's gift, to be sure. I was not always Sister Immaculata. I was carried to Kolkata by rail with two other young women just about my age but from the state of Ranchi. They had green crosses tattooed on their foreheads. At the railway station, we were met and driven to the mother house. We were soon to begin our novitiate, the first stage of our religious life after short and, in my case, thankfully uneventful periods of aspirancy elsewhere. I was terrified. I still felt an imposter. I was among other new Indian sisters, many lifelong Catholics, mostly tribal sort of girls from far-flung corners of our country. We were a different generation than our predecessors like Sister Shanti, who often came from the educated and middle classes. You know better than anyone that the numbers of new vocations are plummeting. Though the MCs are immensely popular, Largely because of mother's enduring fame, I would say it remains a crisis. We are a generation either losing the ears to hear Christ's gentle call or we're so backward that he simply doesn't want us. But then I am reassured by the fact that I too have been called and this is proof that the latter view cannot stand. I'm not sharing this to elevate myself in your view, Francis. It's just that Mita and I are similar souls. Her pains and triumphs are the only reasons I'm willing to step back with you and inhabit these times and places. I imagine you looking off to the side, just past the margins of the page, at your piles of correspondence, demands of advisers and archbishops, your calendar laden with appointments. You feel the need to feed your flock, to retreat for time with the Lord, is this story worth my time, you ask? What are the stakes of this mystery? Put bluntly, it's a battle for Mita's soul. Though I know I can't control what you will do, I hesitate to jump forward for a simple telling of where she ends up would rob her story of its power. No, I simply can't indulge the ticking clock, your grumbling stomach or harried presidents on the line, I humbly demand your full attention. Set aside the day's concerns, step out of your office and join me again in Delhi. For my sake, for my sister's, for your own. Take a seat, Holy Father. There will do. I'll stand. You're correct. Welcome to the view from inside the small oval window of Sister Shanti's office. It is morning. And sister, the creature of habit that she is, passes a few moments with her newspaper. She a saint? I can imagine you asking. Ah, you have seen but glimpses of her. To support my claim of sister's sainthood, you will have to look closer. Detail by fragmented detail will collect, and only then will they resolve into the image of the beatific. Observe. First, there are the superficial things. Sister is 154.94 centimetres. Her skin is brown. Her eyes are brown. Though she wears glasses, the younger sisters in their tertianship remark her eyes are aflame. She has a terrible posture, except when playing the piano. She always favours her left foot. She slipped in the shower a decade ago and fractured her right ankle. It healed poorly and the effect on her gait remains. Her dental hygiene is fastidious. She has but two missing teeth, both molars, both on the right side. 
she was quietly grateful they were not in the front. Her hair, a point of vanity in her youth, is shorn and covered by her banded blue-bordered sari, except at night. She has not seen herself with a full head of hair since she was 21, when she completed aspirancy and entered postulancy. She jots a note in a nearby ledger with her right hand. But look more closely. It is a crossword puzzle. Her disobedience is a few, and this is one of them. She has always loved the newspaper's puzzles, though the worldly clues have become more remote as she has become more removed from the world. She files her half-filled attempts in expense reports folders, knowing no one ever looks there but her. Her rather guilty pleasure is reading American legal thrillers. Her most serious abuse of authority is reading novels lent by stroke-afflicted Omprakash, who lives at the MC home in Civil Lines. He collects the dogged books from visitors who come from all over the world. The entirety of her earthly possessions includes three saris, a grey cardigan, a rosary, a small metal crucifix, an enamel bowl, flatware, and her Bible on the side of her desk. Her holy book is holy. Worms have gnawed the bottom of its pages. Grime and tea-stained speculate. Beyond the Gospels, beyond the Spirit of God becoming manifest in the pages of Scripture like bursting lights, she resists opening the book except when required. Contemplation comes easily, but contemplative prayer not so much. Sister mostly keeps to herself these days. Her confessor, Father Bartholomew, is no confident. She turns from the newspaper again, stricken by something unseen, and takes up her rosary to utter a spontaneous decade. Her rosary is the same given to her by her most beloved teacher, Sister Angelique, an aged French nun from Shanti's convent school days. When Sister Shanti once thought she had dropped her rosary in public, she disobeyed the bell by which all of our nunly activities are regulated until she found it. This is perhaps a portent of more significant losses and more significant recoveries. There is work to do at her desk. There are always calls from those eager to visit the home, to volunteer, to experience the religious life lived under Mother Teresa's rule. Whenever they come starry-eyed, Sister does not disabuse them of their notions of life lived simply in service and prayer, but also does not fail to emphasize the heaps of dirty diapers. A family from Illinois is stopping by in about an hour, and she crosses this from her calendar. There are the details to be coordinated for the upcoming MC retreat. The odious task of tracking finances that raise its head monthly and there is her responsibility for the spiritual care and discipline of those sisters and children and staff under her oversight. Meetings, sessions, gatherings, etc. She pushes all of that to the side for just a few more moments of quiet with her news. She returns to the front page. It is filled with the abhorrent and inane from all around Delhi and the world. She tisks even as she scans the headlines. Another rape, she mutters. Another murder. Another minister indicted on corruption charges. Just as her eye passes over the mention of a grisly death last night, a knock comes from the doorway and disrupts our prying. Yes, Sister Shanti finally says, her voice harsher than she intends. Sister Nipa stands before her, immediately looking downwards. There are deliveries for you, Sister Nipa says. Two, one from the morning post, a second from last night left for you at the gate. Last night? Sister Nipa swallows. Yes. Why was it not delivered to me then? You were with the children during the great silence. I know you do not like distraction when you play the piano for them. And who delivered it? I did not know him. A man, a young man, a worried young man, was bringing it to the gate, said it was important. Sister Shanti returns her eyes to her newspaper and sighs. 
she extends her hand to the open air. When Sister Nipa fails to deposit the letters immediately, Sister snaps her fingers. Sister Nipa approaches the hand like it is a trap set to spring. When the letters are within her grasp, Sister Shanti examines them closely. Thank you, Sister Shanti says. Of course, Mother Superior. And Sister? Y yes? When someone says correspondence they're delivering late at night is of great importance, bring it to me. The great silence was made for man, and not man for the silence. The young nun is confused. Yes, mother, she whispers. You may go. Sister Nipa flits off, a frightened bird. The first letter has her typewritten name above the M.C. Holmes address. International postage stamped with, can it be, St. Peter's Basilica. Turning it over, her eyes catch on a single word in the return address. Vatican. Anxiety claims sister. She rises, looks out on the long corridor outside the office door and engages the lock. Sister Shanti takes half of a long broken pair of scissors in her trembling knotty fingers. A quick slip between shallow breaths, the envelope is open. She pulls out the contents. A single page, typed words on a heavy stock paper. She reads the single, simple paragraph it contains once, twice, thrice. She lets it fall to the desk, lets herself slump in her chair. Her eyes close, her body deflates. We wait a minute before she moves again. Finally, she pushes up her glasses, pinches the bridge of her nose, bites her lip, breathes deeply. She turns, seemingly numbed, and looks out of the small oval window at the birdless bird feeder, the tall wall, the apartment set apart across the road. It is all achingly familiar, yet everything outside feels part of a far-off land she will never, ever visit. There are attempts at prayer, but the words, sentiments, simple feelings of devotion to her God cannot be summoned. She looks at the letter, then at her aged, empty hands. It is a small grace that the door was not knocked at just now, the telephone not rung. Once she is composed, she opens the door and invites in the sounds of squeaky footsteps on concrete floors, the children's cries and laughter and incomprehensible attempts at speech. MCs are meant to be cheerful at all times. She is an MC. She is the Mother Superior. Therefore, she is to be cheerful. She tucks the sadness away and out of view and is very careful to hide the just-received letter. She picks up the second delivery, her mind still lingering on the first. There's nothing written on the outside of the envelope, not a scratch. It's quite thick. Bulging, in fact. A snip of the scissors and... Shock. Money. Hundreds. No, thousands of euros, dollars and a few lakh rupees. She lets it all slide out in a pile on her desk and marvels. She looks for some kind of explanation and finds it. For the children. Goodbye. Ram. The first letter is all but forgotten, a non-issue now. Sister Shanti tries to recall Sister Nipa's few shared details. A worried young man at the gate last night? Fear, just a drop, spreads in her like tincture in water. Out comes her frayed dress book, flipped to R. The only phone number she has for Ram is crossed through. How long is it since she's seen the boy? She immediately regrets the curse that flies from her lips. Sister Nipa had no idea who Ram is to Sister Shanti. Rosary again in hand, Sister begins running the beads through her fingers, not praying, merely thinking. Her darting eyes flit to the newspaper, finding purchase on the ragged edge of the paragraph she was reading just when Sister Nipa appeared. Delhi 
A young man was pushed before the arriving Chandiga express train at New Delhi station last night. Witnesses noticed a brief scuffle before the killer got the better of the victim and tossed him to the tracks as the incoming train arrived at 7.56pm. His assailant, absconded through local police, assured the public they are on his trail. The victim, Ram Kumar, 19, was only immediately identifiable by the contents of his pockets, accounting to the severity of his injuries. Kumar was a young BPO employee from Gargon. He is survived by his bereaved fiancé who was present at the scene. Sister claps her mouth to trap her horror. Four. Take a handful of crumbs, Pope. Spread them widely. The flocks need feeding, and I need to tell you a story within our story. In 1998, in her 59th year, Sister Shanti was panicked. She stood in the shadow of a flyover near Kashmir Gate, the one we stand under this very moment, searching the faces of destitute children. Cars and rickshaws passed overhead. Five other MCs slopped porridge onto flimsy metal plates. Sister, despite herself, could not make herself work. Why, you ask? She did not see Ram. The boy was always quick to assemble. He would run to her with a mischievous smile on his lips and hand her a treasure he had collected. A string bracelet, a smooth piece of coloured glass, a crinkled picture of movie star Damendra. She would take them, hide them away, stifling any sign of the great pleasure she found in the gifts. She ought not to show favouritism, but over the months she had come to know the boy, it proved impossible. She would pat him on the head and return him to the line as her heart was set aflame. That day, they were nearly done serving the children and he was still absent. Sister dropped her ladle, wiped her hands on her royal blue apron, walked among the children as they ingested the thick mush. She inquired after Ram, whether he had been seen and where and when. Fears of all the damnable things that could claim a child on Delhi streets played out in her mind. The children looked into her eyes. They wished to tell her what she wanted to know. Finally, one could. Sister told the junior sisters to gather up the pots and ladles and bowls and return with the driver to the MC home. She would search for Ram. Sister Shanti was asked if she would appreciate help. She declined. She walked the distance from the flyover to the railway station, waded through all manner of suffering on her search. A small girl and her smaller brother begging on the steps of a pedestrian overbridge. A bearded man without legs lying inert on a sodden square of cardboard. A kind policeman let her through without a ticket. She scoured the platforms, pushed through throngs, crashed through crowds. She found Ram in a daze on the fourth platform. His eyes were distant. The odour of urine climbed off him, high from sniffing glue. She lifted him up, wrapped her arms around him. They departed together. A simple tale, but one you will hear echoes of again and again. But for now, throw your last crumbs to the birds, dear Francis. Time marches on, and we must visit Mita. The girl returned disconsolate to the quarter last night. It was only later, after the sun had risen, after Gina had cursed her, after Adiba had bruised her, that two thoughts occurred. One, she shouldn't have gone to the washroom, and two, she should have run away. Gina was taken aback when Mita poked through the door with black streaks of coal running down her face and bleated out Ram's sad fate. Only an hour or so before he had stood before Gina looking young, dapper and, well, alive. Gina's first thought, at least he had paid in advance. Gina's second thought, a valuable lesson was learned. Try to escape and people get hurt. They even die.
After waiting 15 minutes for Meeta to compose herself, Gina re-entered the girls' room. Get ready to take another customer, Gina said, her well of compassion already dry. Off you go to welcome him, she ordered. Meeta would not. The old woman mistakenly believed raising her voice could force Meeta's sobs into submission. It did the opposite. Quiet that down, snapped a man from the curtain space across from Meeta's room. He was busy with Anu, one of Gina's other girls. How am I supposed to fuck with all this noise and bother? Meeta still refused to stir. Gina huffed and spat, the spit landing right on the papered face of actress Sushmita Sen. Gina left and Meeta dug her face into her pillow to muffle her cries, knowing Adiba would soon appear. The hours after stretched and twisted. She passed the night puzzling over the reordering of her imagined future. Conjured visions of Ram falling onto the tracks in slow motion, holding up his hands to stop the barreling train. The coital sounds from all around, hydraulic suction, whispers, men's grunting, were a cruel chorus. Meeta had not felt suffocated like this since childhood when she was nightly tucked away under her mother's bed as it creaked with another visitor's weight. This is what God made you for. She had heard these words all her life, whispered by her mother and grandmother. This trade and the life it brought were her only inheritance, but she had hopes of more. The whole journey from childhood to this night had seemed like her life's first act. The thrilling escape was meant to be the climax, the end, at least until the action-packed sequel arrived in cinemas next summer. The realization that life did not move from Act 1 to Act 2, that fate would not provide an inciting incident to jar her from this existence, was crushing. She was, as she'd always feared, trapped at her beginning. And so the night progressed. She nursed her wounds, she cried, she retched and vomited, she slept. When we arrive, the sun has already begun its afternoon descent and she awakes in a sweat. She pulls her face from her pillow to find a ghostly mask imprinted on it. She fumbles around for a hand mirror. The black eye isn't so bad, not her worst. It could be concealed in part with coal and customers love those black-rimmed eyes. As Mita stirs from her cot, new tears slip onto the floor. They are so sudden, she can't even wipe them away. The sound of her rising brings the quarter's three other didis, or sisters, to her room. We heard. It's so terrible. Yes, so bad. Their words are hollow, forced. They stand in the doorway with crossed arms. To avoid their stares and stop her tears, Mita reaches for a baby wipe and daubs at her face. You thought you were running away last night, says Anu. And didn't even say goodbye, Rifat says. You were busy with other customers, Meeta replies with a wave of her hand. No, we weren't, Anu says. You're so selfish, Deepti says. Meeta turns, her temper flares. You'd have done the same. Anu comes close. We understand the chance you took. Rifat sits next to her. We do, honestly. Only Deepti still scowls from the doorway. Deepti is the worst. She's been this way since Meeta came on the scene. Some would say Deepti is the prettiest. Though she is a wilting flower at 27 or 28, she doesn't know her age. Though she has looks to trap customers, she can't give them a good time, as it were. She keeps to herself, unless angered, and is often found staring off into space alone while the other girls chat and chew gutka and dance and preen one another. Rifat is the only Muslim in the place, fair and a bit chubby. Tricked into this dhanda, this business, she comes from a provincial Kashmiri village and always has some illness. 
a day it is jaundice and this leads her to cook and clean rather than take customers unfortunately for her she remains kind of this the others take endless advantage anu is from malgudi in the south she first began working in chennai's brothels before being shipped to delhi after her attempt to flee and return to her family it was her aunts who handed her back to her apoplectic pimp they had been threatened with violence because of anu's unpaid debts adjusting to the capital had been difficult she had only spoken tamil and took to hindustani poli meeta eyes the mall in turn frowning one of jinas proverbs echoes in her ear yahan ki dosti yahi pe khatam a friendship that starts in this place ends in this place but it isn't her fault she's jinas number one favorite she has a gift excels at dance knows best how to stroke men's egos and their other parts the trade was bred into her quite literally when conceived in an act of transactional sex on the scale of prostitution ranging from the gutter romney to the hoham bedni followed by the respectable tawaif and the courtesan like randi meeta figured she fell safely in randi territory only dipping to tawaif on her bad days she came to jinas brothel from neighboring uttar pradesh up after an incident where that girl was dismissed after circumstances most inauspicious as jina recounted never much discussed but from what meeta gleaned that girl was very active with her teeth the vacancy meant a new girl was needed and through a series of interlocutors and intermediaries meeta was procured from her village in natpurwa i've digressed francis i feel like a widow meeta says glumly after a minute's silence i've been robbed of one of the greatest loves ever known it wouldn't have lasted deepti says flatly men like him come make a thousand promises and then abandon you over for nothing all eyes turn to her this has happened to you anu asks deepti scowls again you sister fucker meeta says rising you come in here say things like this you romney bitch while his remains are on the railway tracks ram wouldn't have left me not a chance deepti waves her hand and grumbles about needing to piss on the way out the door meeta beti anu says caressing meeta's arm you know deepti is more right than wrong move on you'll be better for it another harami will be here in a few days rupees in one hand peak in the other promising to give you the world you too you're all terrible meeta cries rifat is hurt at being associated with the others anu shrugs follows in deepthi's steps i'll never get over this loss meeta cries not with all the rest of my life just quit the act deepthi calls from the toilet we're already tiring with so many storming emotions it is a surprise the seed of an idea germinates takes root breaks soil take note francis see meeta's eyes widen her mouth gape her heart hop this is the moment where one plot line has been cut short but another motivated by the twining threads of revenge and justice is newly spun Meeta throws herself into the corridor and shouts, "I'll show you all! I'll not let it be! If I've been denied love, then I'll have my hate! I'll find the murderer! I'll spend my life hunting down my love's killer!" Peals of laughter erupt, and muffled complaints can be heard from the floor above. Rifat, the only one not to laugh, whispers after Meeta's pledge has a moment to air, but. you can't even leave this place dina would never you think she'll keep me from my vengeance do you rifat shrugs i do meeta pushes past rifat tears down the hole through a curtain of drying bras scaring a surveying rat back into hiding 
Dinner, despite the shouting, dozes as a bleary recording of the Nizahuddin Kowali's drones and drones. I need to leave Jina. I have to catch Ram's killer and kill him. Jina blinks awake. She picks the sleep from her eyes, examines it. She stands. She slaps the girl. Does Adiba need to beat you again? Get back to your room. Mita swallows. She reaches for a knife that Jina left on the table as she chopped a white radish. A threat. Adiba! Jina calls. Quite unaffected. Stupid one here is acting up. Adiba pokes his head from his room. The knife trembles in Mita's hand. Unexpectedly, she lifts it to her own throat. This gets Gina's attention. Her golden goose, her knife to its neck, and with stupidity enough to act. Let's be reasonable. I'm leaving. Just put the knife down, my treasured one. I need to find who did this. Of course you do, but there are considerations. I will kill myself. But why, my dear? You have such a bright. Give me a week, one week. Gina glowers, mulls her options. Five days, six, starting now, tomorrow. Mita's eyes flick between Adiba and Jina. She gives a silent sideways nod. Terms, Jina says. Adiba goes with you everywhere. Mita sneers. All right. Your debt will increase every night you don't work. I expected that. No running away. Jina wags her arthritic finger. Consequences. Mita unconsciously lowers the knife, and Gina eyes it warily. What do I have to run from? The girl says. Now that Ram is no more and I am trapped, life is. Gina rolls her eyes. Just get back in your room and get that swollen face of yours decorated. Customers are coming soon. You'll scare them off. Mita slams the knife down. All watch her. She dabs at a new, genuine tear as she retreats to her room. That same seed is flourishing, sending up a sprout. Rising hope makes her head light, offers a hope that despite this day's darkness, one day, things might be better. Mita sits and picks up a comb, but does nothing with it, just stares at herself in the mirror. Rifat enters wordlessly. She takes the comb and begins running it through Mita's hair. Anu comes in with a sigh and takes Mita's hand. Finally, Deepti enters, brings a chair and places it facing Mita. She begins to powder Mita's face. None speak, their minds heavy with what they suffer and all they will never know. Five. Walk with me now, across the old city, back to the river. We have a very specific meeting to keep. You seem anxious, Pope. I wonder if you're not at ease? Maybe wishing to be finished with all this. I know I offered warning as to what our story would entail, but I suppose you are unaccustomed to visiting brothels? I joke, of course. The quarters may seem the darkest places I'll take you on our travels, but this is not so. Judging by the sun's position, we're still a few minutes early. I see you scan our surroundings, wondering where we are. That massive river is the Yamna. We stand on its western bank, north of the city, in an industrial zone. Just look at all these bilious towers pumping without end. That river, despite appearances, is Delhi's lifeblood. In the past, this water was a cleansing thing. It gave life, took waste away. The muck before you is the price paid for our way of life. I see you leaning down to take a closer look. You will only be disappointed. It is a vitriolic sludge. 
I sometimes think it comes into contact with us, with our sins and bears them. They're so overwhelming, the river cannot handle all the misery we churn out. I fear for our generation, and the next, and the next. When I first found myself in the mother house for aspirancy, it was a surprise to learn how sinful I was. I was relatively new to the church and its teachings, carried into the religious life more with a conviction to love than anything else. Dogma and doctrine were soon to follow, and I have since embraced them. But in those early days, it was so easy. Just simple love, spiritual milk for an infant believer. I was amazed they let me remain. I wasn't able to speak English, not really. I couldn't even navigate the holy book to which I had pledged my allegiance, with all of its numbers and letters, letters and numbers. Fortunately, the mother superior took my deficiencies in her stride, showed much forbearance, gave me extra reading instruction, taught me to use a fork and knife, and, of course, the MC vows. Poverty. I was ambivalent about embracing this one. I have since come around. Chastity. Not a problem. We are fully devoted to Christ alone. No time for menfolk. Obedience. Another concern, not previously a strong suit of mine. And then our fourth vow. Our religious community's reason for being, some might say, wholehearted and true service to the poor. Why I came. The main event. The star attraction. You're probably quite familiar with all aspects of the religious life, so stop me if I'm a bore. I can't really say if the MC period of aspirancy is different from any other religious communities. Work in the mornings, obey the bell, pray and study in the afternoons, obey the bell. It was a regimented existence, but I took to it like some do to military training. Many aspirants struggled with the vast hours of prayer. I did it first. I soon found them to be the source of tremendous consolation and healing. Ah, the sun has slotted into place. And yes, rounding that corner just now are sisters Shanti and Nipa. They walk along the industrial track otherwise alone. Sister finds the streets almost restful compared to the clang and clatter and chaos and crowding of Delhi's byways and roadways and flyovers. There is no chatter between her and Sister Nipa. Sister Nipa looks up at a flock of crows circling overhead like kites in formation. We nuns are meant to keep obedience of the eyes when outdoors, to not let our gaze wander and pray the rosary as we walk. Sisters don't have pedometers to measure the time and distance between two points. They have the rosary. Thus far, despite two intervening commuter bus rides, Sister Shanti has prayed many, many decades. She runs her fingertips over her rosary again, but as their destination nears, her thoughts are a million miles from our father and hailed Mary. Sister stops abruptly, and Sister Nipa is shaken from her own prayers. What is it? Nipa asks. Sister Shanti spins around. She withdraws a carefully folded pencil-drawn map from a plastic bag. She tilts her head. No good at all, Sister mutters. There is not one person to direct them. Despite a breeze, it is so hot. All the factory's guards are hiding in shaded corners. Not far off, she sees a car turn onto the road. She is unfamiliar with most makes and models these days. The need for such knowledge fell away long ago. Though this car she knows. It is an ambassador, an Indian classic. Her family had one once when she was growing up. It had taken her all over Delhi to school, to piano lessons, to the temple, back home again. Flashing memories of rides with her parents are pleasant, at least at first. She tries to wave the car down as it approaches her, 
but its driver refuses to slow down. With hesitation, but not much, she steps into the car's path, prompting a cry from Sister Nipa and forcing the ambassador to skid to a stop. Sister admires the car's shape in chrome before bothering to look up at the driver, who appears very, very angry. With his torso half out of the driver's side window, he hollers, What do you bloody think you're doing, eh? Sister stares him down as she passes Sister Nipa, her head down in shame or prayer, Sister Shanti doesn't care, to face the driver directly. He shrinks back into the car like a turtle tucks in its head. She sizes him up. He has a long beard, well-tended and flecked with grey, and puffy eyes. He wears a khaki bush shirt and turban. You are standing in my way, he says sheepishly. I am. The car's rear windows are tinted, and she can't resist peeking through his open window at the passenger. A woman, older than Shanti but not so distant in age, sits staring into space from the back seat. Her head is a clash of colour. Wrapped in a floral print scarf, her eyes are shaded behind buggy purple sunglasses, while the lower part of her face is painted to an extent she appears clown-like. She is Indian by her looks, very light-skinned and dainty. Well, what is it? The air conditioning, it escapes, the driver says. Indeed it does. The mild cool was refreshing and Sister luxuriated in it. We're a bit lost, Sister finally says, and without help. We're looking for the public crematorium, the electric one. The duffers have not placed any signs on the road and we've never been this way. The driver leans forward to observe Sister Nipa, who still peers at the ground. He looks at Sister Shanti again and his expression softens just so. Drive, Malhotra, drive. I'm too tired to trifle. Malhotra turns to his passenger. Just a moment, Mensahib. These two have lost someone as well. We'll be on our way shortly. Too tired to trifle, she says, her voice trailing off. Malhotra grimaces at her remark. He turns to Sister. You saw where we turned from a moment ago, Sister nods. Go down not two hundred metres more. There's your crematorium. Sister gives a tilt at the head. I thank you, Malhotra Saib. The woman in back raises her hand to her head as if pained. Just drive. With a shrug, Malhotra rolls up his window. An interesting pair. Sister remarks as the car accelerates and turns around a bend. Most, Sister Nipa replies. Shanti looks at Nipa. The young nun is perpetually tense. Sister sighs and moves on. The crematorium is surprisingly small, set behind a chain-link fence. It is a radical departure from the open-air funerary ghats along the Yamna where Hindus bring their dead. The electric burning was meant to limit deforestation and reduce air pollution, but all of the environmental and cost benefits in the world couldn't make up for the alienness of this dark-looking box. Electric gats like this are mostly used by the poor and for unclaimed victims whom no one comes forward to claim. The Ram Kumars of the world. The shock of learning Ram was dead lasted all morning. Immediately labelled in sister's mind as the profound sadness, at the ring of the bell, so conditioned was sister that her tears dried up, her sorrow ceased, only to be replaced by weight, imponderable and unmovable. Composed again, she wandered the rest of the day through an emotional fog so thick that it levelled highs and lows alike. Sister called a local policeman in their district, a desk officer who had been of help on several past occasions. Within three hours, there was a return call and an address given. A check of an old Delhi map in her office displayed the main road but showed the area surrounding it as devoid of settlement or industry. Delhi, ever metastasizing, had been on the move. 
The crematorium's main gate is ajar. The chowkidar dozes where he sits. They do not disturb him as they step inside under a prominent sign which declares, Burning of the non-dead forbidden. Dear God, sister mutters. They find themselves in one of the dark chambers used for cremations. It has space for attendees to gather around a rectangular central platform with a slatted sliding door. A track lies on the floor running up to the slats with a sort of sled locked into place. Red lights glare from a control panel built into a side wall. There are no mourners, no bhajans being sung, no prayers being offered. Wait here, Sister Shanti tells Sister Nipa and sets out looking for an attendant. The squeaking of her sandals echoes, bouncing off the utilitarian walls and floors. Anyone here? she hollers. A door opens at the end of the corridor. A slight middle-aged man appears, his hands sheathed in yellow kitchen gloves and his fingertips facing upwards. He wonders at the old woman decked in white. You are? Here to mourn, sister says matter-of-factly. I received notice you were processing the body of a young man. He died last night. Here for the, uh, he signals with a chop. Train one. Yes, the train one. Her features curl. He's underway. Burning? Burning. I hoped to see him. You wouldn't have wanted. His face. He rams one hand into the other. Interesting mode of death. Normally it is the bullets, head trauma, stab wounds. Sister clears her throat. At least it was quick, sister says. Ah, says the attendant. True, I can take you to him. He is finishing at any moment. Sister stands inert, as if put on pause. Finally, did he uh, have any effects? The attendant looked at her dumbly. Any things when he came? In his pockets? On his person? Glumness sets in, as if he's been left on the sides at a cricket match. The dead from the streets are well picked over when they arrive, he says. Police, all the men who bring the bodies do it. Vultures, all of them. There is a billfold but not a pest to be found inside. May I see it? That's not allowed. Please, no exceptions. Sister grimaces. It's uh, generally wise not to go against Sister Shanti's wishes. Sister Nipa says, finally making her presence known. He coughs. It's so very difficult. My precious daughter Prithri, all of seven years, she is needing new shoes. All I can think about, in fact. Though his tone is flat, his eyebrows are buoyant. Sister Shanti comes close and, despite her diminutive size, scares him. Do not ask for bakshish. The boy burning in that little box was as a son to me. Either there are rules and you cannot do it, or, out of respect for me and my loss, you will do it. The attendant swallows. Yes, Mam Saba, I am seeing. A daughter's shoes can wait. He goes to the back room. Sister Shanti ignores Sister Nipa's surprise and returns to the crematorium chamber. Hears the hiss of the flames at work. Are you all right? Sister Nipa inquires, rejoining her. A simple reply. No. When the attendant returns, he has removed the gloves. The billfold is covered with a bit of sir's remains, but I was able to find these. He places two items in sister's outstretched hand. She raises them to her eyes and squints. The first is a business card. Shaji and Sons Antiques and Metal Recycling, a subsidiary of Shaji and Sons Co. Chori Bazaar. The second is a railway ticket. She reads, Passenger, Meeta Chandraleka, Destination, Bungalow. 
likely the fiancé mentioned in the article, sister realises. Are they to your satisfaction? The attendant asks sister. They are. Your young man is the final cremation of the day. We'll only stay a few moments then. As you wish. Sister Nipa waits awkwardly as Sister Shanti stands before the concrete box in silence, still wondering at Sister's reference to Ram as her son. Figuratively, of course. But it helps her understand what has taken hold of the usually inscrutable Sister Shanti. Touching other sisters outside of what is necessary is prohibited under the MC rule. It is an attempt to avoid particular friendships, a euphemism if ever there was one. Sister Nipa worries Sister Shanti would take it poorly if she offers her a consoling hand. Sister Nipa does so anyway. Sister Shanti responds slowly. She takes her hand in her own. The profound sadness is written on her face. Thank you for accompanying me, Sister Shanti whispers. It means much. They turn, waiting the remaining minutes for the buzzer to sound and the cremation to end, but depart before the attendant comes to dispose of what remains. This has been a Dispatch Publishing production of Little Flower, written by Ted Oswald and performed by Zara Jane Nakui. Text copyright 2017 by Ted Oswald. Music by Kevin McLeod, used by permission. If you have enjoyed this production, please consider rating and reviewing this audiobook at audible.com and on goodreads.com. Thank you.